a phrase that is pertinent to the church, the body of Christ, uh, is something that I think that is important for us to pursue and to examine and understand what it means to be the bride. Be the bride. Don't cough when I'm talking. Uh, to be <laughs> to be the bride of Christ. What that entails. What why that that expression is sometimes used with reference to the church. Uh, we refer to the church as the body of Christ, the church, and so on. You don't hear the bride of Christ too much. But once in a while, uh, it does come up in Scripture. Uh, Paul mentions it in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Revelation chapter 19. And, of course, he does compare the idea of marriage and this idea of Christ's church being his bride he makes a a comparison in Ephesians chapter 5. And so these things, I think, are important for us and some understanding here that I hope I can bring this morning. Years ago, uh, when I was taking classes, they they did sojourners, they did uh, uh, Lagos a little differently then. It was an actual series of courses over a period of two or three years, and you took them and they gave you a certificate and so on. And while I was going through that, uh, one of the professors that was here, Dr. Robert, Robert Sosi, uh, he was a professor at uh, Talbot. He wrote a book on God's plan for the church. And in that, he made this statement, which I came across here recently. He said this, one of the most beautiful images of the church is that of the bride of Christ. And if we really think about that and all that it entails, it does bring us to Ephesians chapter 5, and I know some of you aren't married, uh, hopefully, as our pastor has said many times, we'll get you married, uh, that's important, but uh, it does bring up to us, and I hope all of you who are married, some challenges, because we make some comparisons between what it means to be Christ's bride in a saving sense and what it, how that should be applied to our married lives. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, we read these words, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and his wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The Lord, the first institution that our Lord introduced into his creation in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, was marriage. And in that, as Paul tells us here in verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 5, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. And as we have just read, there's no other relationship described in Scripture with the exception of marriage and the sinner's relationship to the Savior where it's described as two becoming one. And I think that is significant. 
And one of the first things that I want to mention to you, and there's four things, and I don't know if we'll get to all four of them or not. I, I never knew, never know. I just write out some things, and then we see how what the Lord does with it. And uh, we may get through the four of them, we may not. But one of the first ones is permanency. And uh, that when we come to Christ in faith, because of the drawing of the Father, Jesus said in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless my Father first draws him. So just as when you got married, you saw someone and they saw you and uh, you were drawn to each other and perhaps with all the different relationships you'd had up to that time, there was something special and something unique about this one. And it, after a while, you knew this is the one, and I'm speaking to you now, hopefully as a believer, uh, you knew this was the person God had set apart for you. And some of you here may have to remember that. It may go back, you may have to go back. You may have to stop and think about that for a while because you have to go back a few years. But nonetheless, I believe that as God drew you to that lady or that lady and the two of you were drawn together, that was God's drawing, just as it is God's drawing to Christ. I realize it's not quite on the same level, of course, but when you enter in a relationship with the Lord Jesus by faith, it's designed to be a permanent relationship. And sometimes, especially in this day and age in which we live, we're so casual now about what well, we heard our pastor this morning, and certainly those things that he said were all true, and we are sometimes absolutely shamed at what we see as becoming what's happening in this country. It's just really a sham and a shame. And uh, what the Lord's going to do with all this, we have no idea. But nonetheless, we as Christian people in this country need to live our lives, and especially our married lives, in a way that stands out in contrast to what we see in the world. And over the years of the time that I have been in churches and pastored and, and counseled and done various things, I have never seen a time when even Christian people have become far too casual about marriage. And even Christian people are willing to leave their marriage under very, very minor and almost insignificant concerns. And sometimes it seems like there are some folks who are just almost looking for an excuse to abandon their wedding vows. Obviously, that is not an accurate representation of your relationship with Christ. When Jesus died for you, when he said in John 19, it is finished, it is finished. And when you come into a relationship with him, and if it's a genuine, I'm talking about genuine faith, genuine love for him, depending on him and no one else or nothing else for your salvation, you're trusting in him alone, you have come into his body. You have come into his presence. His Holy Spirit has come to indwell you, as we learned this morning, Romans 5.5. 5. As a matter of fact, Paul went on to say, if you, have, no, if you not have not the spirit of him, you are not part of him. That is a permanent relationship. And your marriage is, number one, to reflect the permanency of that relationship. Uh, you know, the Bible only gives us two reasons that we can biblically leave our marital relationship. One is adultery, and the other one, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So those are the only two situations that you can, biblically, before the Lord, 
separate from your wife or your husband. But I want to say this, that even in cases of adultery, you can't do anything about it if an unbeliever leaves. They're, they're gone. And Paul says, for the sake of peace, let them go. But for adultery, even in cases of adultery, what did our pastor, what has our pastor said about love and forgiveness? If that person returns with a truly repentant heart, seeking your forgiveness, and wanting to restore that marriage and that relationship, you are responsible responsible before the Lord to receive them back. Now, I know that's a hard thing, but that's what Scripture teaches us. And that illustrates God's love for his church and his people, because how many of us here are perfect? How many of us here have not sinned against God And as we've heard this morning, not only physically, but mentally. I was talking to some of the ISI guys yesterday, and Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, tells us how can a young man keep purity in his life? How can he maintain purity? And one of the things that we have, where purity begins, is the continuing, constant confession and repentance. The minute the thought, the thought enters your mind, you haven't done anything. The thought has just gone through your mind. You repent right then and there until repentance becomes a habit pattern of your life. And I think many believers, you're walking down a hallway, you're walking through a mall, you're on your way to see your boss, you're driving up the freeway on a vacation. Your mind and your heart ought to be continually focused on the Lord so that you're praying continuously and repenting and thanking him for forgiveness. And here's the point I want to make. If you allow a sin to continue unconfessed in your mind, it will eventually lead to an act of sin. You cannot let sinful thoughts settle in your mind and your heart to the point where they become commonplace. You don't deal with them. And as some have said, you allow them to marinate in your mind. And when you get married and you look at that beautiful woman or that handsome man and uh, after a little while, as we used to say when I was a kid, the bloom is off the rose, uh, you begin to have second thoughts. You know, did I make a mistake? And all of a sudden, you know, you get up in the morning and you're looking at bedhead and you look at, your, look at her or him and you say to yourself, well, you know what? I'm not so sure about this. (laughs) I would remind you of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, when you first saw her, you first saw him, you didn't think in those terms. You saw what was beautiful. You saw what you wanted to see. You saw something special, something unique. But after you've been married for a while, sometimes that, uh, that kind of wears off. My point is that if you let these thoughts marinate in your mind and you let these thoughts continue and you don't deal with them, instead you begin to give in to watching things you shouldn't watch, seeing things you shouldn't see, focusing on things that are dishonoring to the Lord, clearly revealed in Scripture, again, as we heard this morning, I keep talking about John, it's, but his message this morning, <laughs> honestly, you can't, you can't get it out of your mind, can you? I mean, I hope you can't. You shouldn't get it out of your mind. You shouldn't want to get it out of your mind. But I keep mentioning that because what he said this morning is so critical. And it's even more critical today than it was when I was a kid growing up or when I was young. When I first saw my wife and we first got married, the temptations now, the avenues to begin to 
think more and more along the lines that involve sinful patterns, thinking that you shouldn't think, things you're thinking that you shouldn't think, things that you're thinking that clearly go against Scripture. In our society today, it's so much easier to hide those thoughts and retreat into some secret location and watch something you shouldn't see, and then those thoughts are fed, and they get stronger and stronger and stronger. And Satan uses that then to increase the level of doubt. And as you begin to look over at your, your spouse, he or she gets less and less attractive. And then you begin to rationalize, and then you begin to think of ways you can get out of this and still maintain some level of dignity. And it doesn't work, and it will not work. This is why I say we have got to deal with these things immediately. Uh, When we look at the Lord Jesus and we look at his terrible suffering and death on the cross, and he did that to enable us to enter into a permanent relationship with him, he sustains you, he strengthens you, he empowers you, he teaches you, he grants you confidence and faith, and assurance. He is the very substance of your life. And you live for him. You walk with him. You read the scriptures. You pray. You come to church. In other words, if you want a successful relationship with your wife or your husband, the first thing you have to do is strengthen your relationship with the Lord Jesus. You can't separate your relationship with your wife or your husband from your relationship with the Lord Jesus because he's the one that brought you to her or him in the first place and it's him who, by his strength and his power, is going to sustain that relationship. But if you run off at Satan's beckoning finger... Every little time you see something on the, on the movies or you see something on television or whatever, and, and even you watch in some of the old movies, stuff pops up, sometimes in advertisements and so on. And what I've, the place I've come to is I just sit there with the TV monitor in my hand so I can turn it off until those moments are passed and get back to the the realism of movie romance. <laughs> and, and you know, when, when, when you begin to really closely monitor your thoughts and your thinking, the Lord will then bless you and you'll begin to experience his strength. And you'll begin to experience a strength and a power and an empowerment that up to now Maybe you haven't really truly experienced. And all these harmful thoughts that could betray your relationship with your wife or your husband will become less and less. And what maybe began as a dominant theme or a dominant thought pattern in your life now begins to regress. And you'll find that you don't have those thoughts so much anymore you'll find that they'll begin to wane. And the closer you walk with the Lord, the more you cry out to him, the more you're in his word, the more you're in prayer, the more that you will experience victory. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, no temptation is too great. He said that God has not provided a way of escape. And you know as well as I do that way of escape is the Lord Jesus. And the problem is, down deep inside in our heart of hearts, until we're faced with some sort of crisis or something really, really heavy duty, I think a lot of us don't really believe that. We don't live like it. 
and we allow even trivial things to draw us off far too easily. We let things undermine us that we shouldn't. And we do so because down deep inside, in our heart of hearts, we really don't believe that God will sustain us, lead us, guide us, and bring us victory. And some of you get caught up in in a guilt issue, but something maybe you did in the past, or even before you were saved. And guilt encroaches in your relationship. Now, we remind you what Paul says in Philippians. I forget what lies behind and press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, looking under Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, where he does what? Ever makes intercession for us. If you've truly come to Christ and you've confessed your sin before him, you don't have to feel guilty. Yes, you, ha- you, you need to be enough aware that you are careful and you're sensitive to perhaps your sinful proclivities, but you have grown in your relationship with him to the point where you know he's going to save you from those thoughts that he's going to bring the victory and you're going to have a faithful, long relationship as Christ intended. You know, sometimes people ask, well, I thought Israel was God's bride. How did the church get to be God's bride? And I would just remind you that, yes, there are some verses that lend themselves. They'd say that God says, I'm your husband. says that to Israel. But please keep something in mind. Israel was a faithless wife. She was a faithless wife. And there's no book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that draws that out in graphic terms like the prophet Hosea. As a matter of fact, in in, uh, the the prophet Hosea, uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, "When when Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land, listen, the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking Yahweh. Now, that doesn't mean that God has forsaken Israel. I, want, I think that needs to be clarified. I got to <laughs> maybe mention that parenthetically. I hope we have time to continue afterward. But uh, I do want to mention to you, there are those who think that because of that, God's promises to Israel have been transferred to the church. Uh, the Reformers thought that. And there are people today, and and godly men. One in particular I'm thinking of, he's in heaven now, and the Lord straightened him out, but the the idea is they've been transferred to the church. That is certainly not true. And I well, I, I at least got to show you Romans 11, and I got to back this up, I guess. Uh, verse 25, Paul says this, I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's us, the church. And some of you guys at ISI have read that a million times, so you can doze off if you want. But... that is something to bear in mind. In God's plan, his focus now is on you and I, the Gentiles, generally. Now, yes, there are some Jews that are being saved during this period, certainly. But the fact of the remain is, 
when the body of Christ is complete, when the number, when all the people that God ordained from eternity past have come to Christ, and the body of Christ now is full, the body of Christ is complete. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen through sixteen says he will take that this church out, and then he will return to dealing with Israel. And personally, I think he's going to save Israel during the tribulation period. Thank you, Joe, for that nodding. I look for support from these guys. I I mean, I'm over my head. But anyway, uh, the the idea is, is that he has not finished with Israel. And, And folks, I could just... We have that, I wish I could go through and point out and, and, and emphasize here how important it is to realize that if we can't trust God's promises to Israel, how can we trust him to the church? And we could go through here and I could show you even historically over the past 2,000 years how God has protected Israel and kept them separated by, by and large for the most part, not every single Jew, of course, from the nations of the world and kept them separate and kept them intact. Uh, when, uh, when Hadrian destroyed Jerusalem in 135 AD, he sprayed salt on the hills. There was nothing that could even grow there. And the place where Israel had fostered and, and, and grown and, and all of that, uh, it dissipated. Matter of fact, Mark Twain, Mark Twain when, he, when he visited Palestine in the mid-1880s, he said, who in the world would want this place? It's just nothing but a bunch of varmints running around. There's nothing growing here. It's just desolate. Well, he, of course, Twain wasn't a believer, but I think he, why would even God want this place? But interestingly enough, Herzl, who was a Jewish journalist, uh, covered a trial in France. It was called the Dreyfus Trial. Herzl was a Jewish journalist, and he was covering the trial. And this French officer was being charged with treason, but he was also Jewish. And Herzl, as he was covering the trial, realized that this was all made up, that Dreyfus was not guilty, and this was just simply because he had reached officer levels in the French army, they didn't like it, and they want to get rid of him because he was Jewish. Well, after a period of time, that was exposed. As a matter of fact, Dreyfus, I think, finally, when he retired, he was a general. But... What it did with Herzl is, he said that if the Jews don't get back to their land, if they don't get back to the land, this is going to continue until finally the Jewish, they're not going to be any more Jewish people. They're just going to be dissolved. They're just going to disintegrate. They're not, they're not going to be here. And somehow he got a group of Jewish people to go back to Palestine. And a whole generation gave their lives to restore the property. Knee-deep in swamps, draining the swamps, planting, giving themselves, and finally bringing the land back to where it was fruitful again. Now, that was just a few years ago, a couple of centuries ago. People think God doesn't speak today. <laughs> he speaks in the Bible and so on, and yeah, we have kind of a vague understanding and we're not really as committed to it. Who orchestrated the Dreyfus trial? Who brought Herzl to France? Who put those thoughts in his mind, in his heart? Where did he get the people to go back with him and, and sacrifice themselves, a whole generation, to bring the land back? God did, because he has a plan. And he has not forgotten his promises to Israel. And so they came back, and people began to trickle back into the land. 
And finally, jumping way ahead in 1947, when Israel became a nation, there was more miracles going on there. Places where there were Jewish people fighting for their land. And I've read stories where there was like 15, 20 Jews in a trench and, and they have one rifle and they're passing the rifle back and forth and each one taking a shot, reloading it, and somebody else takes a shot. Well, under the mass armies that were going against them, how did they do that? How did they survive all that? God did that. God is the one who's protecting and preserving his people. Over all those years in Europe, he saw to it that the Jews were kept, for the most part, in ghettos. Ghetto is, is, didn't originate here in America. It originated in Italy. And they were kept behind those walls and those ghettos. They could go out at day for shopping, and they had to be back inside those walls after a certain time. And in that way, God, over the centuries, kept his people separate so they didn't amalgamate with all the nations. And he kept them separate and isolated. Why? Saving them for that Revelation chapter 7, 144,000. And some of you may wonder, well, wait a minute. I thought the northern kingdom was destroyed. But if you read Second Chronicles, you'll find that over the period of their separation after the nation separated, elements and members from every one of the tribes eventually drifted south and were incorporated in Judah so that all the tribes ultimately were represented in the southern kingdom. And the Levites, they couldn't wait to get down there because Benjamin's territory, which was associated with Judah, was just inside Jerusalem. The Levites, their priests... The northern kingdom developed their own priesthood, which was ungodly, unbiblical. The Levites couldn't wait to get out of there and get down and, and reunite with the southern kingdom so they could be part of a godly priesthood. Do you see how <laughs> even when they were in Egypt, scholars have described that as Israel's incubation period, keeping them separate until God was ready to release them. And they went in there 70, came out about two and a half million. Then God took him to the land after he scolded him, gave him a spanking in numbers. But the point of it is we see how God has preserved Israel supernaturally through all these events. And this is just, this is just surface. If God has gone to those lengths to protect and preserve his people, how far does he want you to go to preserve the life of your marriage which he instituted? You pull out all the stops. You do whatever you have to do. And bear in mind that biblically there's only two reasons. If your unbeliever leaves, and even in a case of adultery where you could separate, you're encouraged to work that out as well, especially if your partner's asks for forgiveness. Well, oh, I got a lot of time. Uh, (laughs) So oneness carries with it the idea of completeness and that God has no intention of separation. That's not in his mind. It's not in his heart. And that shouldn't be in your mind and your heart either. So oneness, permanency, and what prompted the Lord to love you and to bring you to himself? Love. But I want to remind you that as you love your mate, as you love your mate, as we've read in, first, in Ephesians chapter 5, the way we're supposed to love our mates. As a matter of fact, Paul says, cling to your mate. And I read somewhere that the Greek there is it's not inaccurate to say, remain cemented. 
with your mate. I don't know if that's right or not, Joe, but <laughs> nod your head, even if you don't agree with me. <laughs> uh, stay submitted. Now, now, let me just say this. In John 3.16, and, and, and especially in John 21, where the Lord is challenging Peter, do you love me, do you love me? The word that he uses for love is agape. And that's, that's a kind of a love that is sacrificial. It's not, a, it's not a word of sentiment. It's a word of sacrifice. Notice what John 3.16, he says. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He said to Peter, do you love me, Peter? Then feed, tend, shepherd, it's always followed with a word, with a verb of action. And it reminds us that if we really love someone, there's going to be a requirement. And the requirement is that you give up yourself in deference to him and your mate. And you have to give them up on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. Raising my boys, I I try to teach them that mom has to come first until you're married. And then from then on, your wife comes first. Because you love her over every other person except the Lord Jesus himself. You are immersed in her love. And I, I have to tell you, and I, some of you aren't going to like to hear this, but I'm going to say it because I believe it's true. And the truth of the matter is that unfortunately, and I want to say this kindly, but there are believers that have put their kids before their spouse. And they're believers who have put mom, their own mom and dads before their spouse. And they're not making sacrifices for their spouse. They're making sacrifices for their kids. And they're making sacrifices for mom and dad. It's true. The Bible says to honor your parents. That's entirely true. And I understand that. But to honor them within reason, to honor them and not above your spouse. And I have counseled with, talked with ladies who have said, to me, I feel abandoned because my husband is just constantly, everything he does, well, mom this, mom that, mom the other thing. She's not even included in the conversation. Or others who have damaged their marriage relationship because their kids have gone off and done something really stupid and now they feel like they owe him something to the point where they put their kids first instead of mom, instead of her own, his own wife or his own husband. Those circumstances, God knows all about those circumstances. He knows all about those conditions. And in some respects, I believe they're really challenges because it's, it's going to be now a demonstration Who's number one in your life? Over the long haul, your wife, mom and daddy, your kids. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 is clear. And you've heard people say this a million times, leave and cleave. But unfortunately, in our minds and sometimes in our hearts, we don't really do that. And when the preacher says, you take your wife until death. In the back of your mind, there's a caveat. Well, yeah, I'll take her to death as long as mom and dad are okay or the kids are okay or whatever. No, she's first, he's first. And you do not allow in-laws to compromise that relationship. And believe me, there are in-laws who now know exactly how to do that. They will manipulate 
and they will use guilt. And there's a number of ways that they can undermine the relationship between a man and his wife by making the husband or the wife feel guilty and interrupt their relationship. But they couldn't if the spouse was strong enough and wise enough and discerning enough to see it, to be kind, to be loving, to be helpful, but not to the point where they override their sacrificial love for their spouse. She or he comes first. That relationship cannot be supplanted by any other relationship. Now, it doesn't mean that you're harsh or you're cruel or you're unloving or you're unhelpful. Of course not. But it comes down to priority. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then obviously sin has no place for that, right? But when you let sin in, what you're saying is, well, I really don't love him, all, mind, all heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And the, and the evidence of that is you let sin creep into your life. Well, when you have a relationship with your wife and you say you love her or him, but you let some relative undermine that and drive a wedge between it, then you're really saying, well, I love her, but I don't love her quite that much. Love is a Love is true love, biblical love, spiritual love, the love that Christ puts in our heart is not negotiable. Jesus said you must love me even more than your own family. Well, you come trickle down from there to the woman or the man that's sitting next to you and that person is next in line. And if my mate demands of me something that the Lord doesn't allow, then obviously I demonstrate that I love the Lord in a sacrificial way, and I say, no, we're not doing that. That's unbiblical. So obviously you always stand fast for the Lord first. But let me just say, from a sacrificial standpoint, with your mate, The bank book is getting kind of, there isn't whole much in there anymore. <laughs> in this day and age, that wouldn't be surprising. And uh, so she needs shoes and you need shoes. Who's the first one to get the shoes? The leader, the man. He gives them up to his wife first. He takes what's left. That's true love. That's sacrificial love. That's putting your, the love of your wife before yourself. And, and that is so desperately important because that lends itself to security. If, you're, if your wife knows, you men, that you love her to that extent, it's going to provide security for her. And when times do get tough for you and everybody... She is going to look to you with hope and with confidence and assurance that no matter what happens, she's not going to be left adrift. You're going to stand your ground and you're going to protect her at all costs. And if you've only got enough money for your wife and enough money for your wayward child, guess who gets it? The wayward child made his own bed. Your wife is trusting you for support and solace and security. And she has to know repeatedly on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis that no matter what happens, you will never forsake her. You will never leave her. Isn't that what Jesus said to us in Matthew 28? Just before he, was transfer- he went to heaven? 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. Shouldn't that theology, that doctrine, be reverberate itself in the way we treat our wives? Men, you're called to be the leader. You're called to be the decision maker. The weight of responsibility for the health of that household, both physically and spiritually, lies directly on your back. And if you question that, you haven't read Ephesians 5 carefully. Love is inexhaustible. It's indistinguishable. It permeates your relationship. And you can demonstrate it every single day. Now, that doesn't mean that we automatically say your wife is right in everything. I'm talking to the men now. <laughs> talking to a young man just a couple of days ago where discussing that struggle. And I know it ain't popular to tell women they're supposed to be submissive to their husbands. But I didn't say that. I'm just rereading it. So don't blame me. Now, I was very fortunate. The Lord directed me to a woman that we didn't have those kind of problems. But the fact remains is that one of the marks of a leader in a home is that first of all, if you're going to be a godly leader, you've got to be a godly man, right? Secondly, you have to make decisions and you have to talk. Now, I know for some guys, talking is just something that's just almost impossible. I don't know how many times over the years I've had a woman say, he won't talk to me. I know something's really bothering him. I said, no, something's really hurting him, but he won't talk about it. And my advice is grab him by the throat, yank him up against the wall, and say, what is wrong with you? You know, as a kid, I remember my parents sometimes having arguments. And I knew sometimes what the substance of the argument was. And I used to think to myself, why don't they just sit down and talk about it? What are they doing this for? And then I would just go out the back door and do something else. Because to me, it was just stupid. And I have to say that I know, and I, when I grew up, some of you remember, you grew up, you're old too. Uh, <laughs> you remember growing up in those days. And the hero was the strong, silent type. Well, I tell you what, there's nothing more frustrating for a wife than to be married to the strong, silent type where she's got to guess and try to figure out everything because he doesn't talk. So I say all that because I want to get to this point. Headship, decision-making, doesn't mean dictatorship, and it doesn't mean that the wife is passive. Anybody that knew Janie knew she was not passive. <laughs> and she fought me on a number of issues. One I can think of when I said I want to go out and live in a canyon and have horses and live in dirt and, and have a well and leech. She was not happy about that. <laughs> but you know what? The Lord had a plan. He sent me out there with a plan I didn't know and I didn't see, but eventually we wound up pastoring a church out there and planting a church out there. And he used my <laughs> sinful materialism <laughs> and self-centeredness to accomplish his own purposes. But anyway... <laughs> The point I want to make here is women do not sit indolently and just listen and just follow commands. You interact with the Lord, don't you pray? You know, I counted sometimes, I counted over 17 times that the scriptures either, either show Jesus praying or he's talks about praying or he's encouraging prayer or he's telling us how to pray, Okay. You talk to the Lord Jesus, you talk to your wife, men, and you have discussions. And where there's some tension and where there's some disagreements, you talk it out. And sometimes Janie would bring something to my, my attention that I had not realized, I hadn't seen. It was a blind spot. 
No, I'm not saying I humbly thanked her, but I, 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 I am saying that it opened my eyes to something I hadn't seen and it did contribute to the decisions that I made. But the point of it is that after the discussion, the loving, caring discussion, and the dust has settled, all the points have been brought out, then ladies, you step back. He's got all the facts. The decision's his. And if the decision he makes is not to your liking, you don't raise another argument and you don't go somewhere and sulk. You accept that as God's decision because God is working through the man. That's clear as the nose on your face. In my case, mine's a little clearer. Uh, the nearest it close is it, 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 it couldn't be any clearer. And you have here's what you're trusting. You're not just trusting your husband. You're trusting the Lord because the Lord says, "I'm working through the man." And I want to tell you something. In the church I pastored, there was a couple in that church, and she was obviously smarter and quicker than he was. No question about it. But I got to tell you, the way she gave her testimony to the church and to the people, because people kind of, they they knew that. It was fairly obvious. But you know what? She so skillfully and prayerfully and spiritually let her husband have the lead. And then in a very gentle way, if it was going to be something that was really dumb, she would very gently, in a very godly way, remove, move him in the direction he needed to go. And sometimes she just let it go, even though she didn't agree with it and could see some problems down the road. But she would just say, well, Lord, you're, you know that. You're in control. And she would just very, in a very godly way, just step away. And as we've said, let the chips fall. And I don't know of a situation that God did not honor that. Because that is God's divine design. You're following the Lord. You're not worshiping at the altar of your husband. You're following the Lord because he's the one that's in charge. And so I think when it comes to oneness, permanency, sacrificial love, and if you begin to connect the dots, then what it says is, and especially where women are concerned, it leads to security, as we mentioned before. You, you can feel, begin... And, you know, even though you go through some tough times and you wish maybe things had been a little different here, a little different there, a different decision here, a different decision there, in the long haul, at the end of the day, it's going to lead to this overwhelming sense that I am secure. And that no matter what happens, my husband's going to take care of me. And even though there are times when you debate with him or you don't agree with him and even leads to an argument or whatever, over a period of time, God's way is always going to prove itself out to be the best way. And that's his way. Only once in Scripture do I remember the Lord say, he said to Abraham, listen to Sarah. <laughs> and we try to bury that passage but uh, <laughs> but she had a wise comment and I have to say there's been times when my wife made some wise comments I listened and it changed my direction so again let me emphasize to you ladies when you throw something at me uh, we're not talking about being passive and I also am aware that there are men 
who translate it that way, and that's what they want. And I want to say to you guys, if you think that way, you're wrong. You've misunderstood the passage. And if you truly love your wife, you're not going to run roughshod over her. You're not going to use her as a doormat to wipe your feet on and have your way above all else. Because if both of you want what God wants for your relationship and your marriage and your home, if, if you both want that, then you both need to be striving ultimately and finally for God's will. And then just realize that he will reveal that through the man. And then, of course, the whole area of discipleship and discipline and all of that, which we don't have time to get into. But again, I just want to say this as we close. And I know you're thinking, we're finally going to close. Uh, That when it comes to discipline and devotions and that sort of thing, I realize men can't always be there for that. But one of the things that Janie never did, and you know from the stories that she could be a terror with those kids, <laughs> which I'm eternally grateful for because they're good, they're good boys, and I thank her for that. But I don't remember her ever saying, you wait till your dad gets home. She took care of business then and there. She didn't say, you know, you wait for dad. She took care of it herself, unless it was something really, really bad, which fortunately didn't happen, but once or twice. <laughs> and the other thing is, because I was working some part-time jobs, security jobs and stuff, I couldn't, wasn't always there to lead out in devotions. But I want to tell you that prayer and being in the Word with you and your family is absolutely critical. And, and I said, I, it's, there's at least 17 passages talking about Jesus praying or having to do with prayer. There's some 40 passages where he begins his response to something someone has said to him, it is written, it is written, it is written. Prayer and being immersed in God's word is essential to a strong, spiritually healthy family. And man, even though you might not be able to be there for every disciple uh, devotions, you need to lead in it when you are there and as often as you can, and it needs to be a priority. Because you, you, you're not going to have wisdom if you're not in this book. The Bible is God's love letters to his people. And they, this book, was it John said in the Q&A when you're discussing an issue with someone? He says, it's not your opinion. He said, it's the Bible that has the power. It's what the Bible says. And that's true when you're raising your kids. And that you, along with Jesus, should be able to say, it is written, it is written, it is written. Because this is where we go. We need help counsel, advice, direction. And then with those issues that aren't clear, we're on our knees beseeching the Lord for his wisdom, his discernment, and his guidance. And if both of you are doing that, how can you help but have a strong marriage and a strong relationship and have an effective witness before a watching world? As people look at you and they measure your relationship with your wife or your husband with your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, you are the answer to all of our issues, all of our problems, all of our issues. Peter said, cast all of our anxiety upon you. And Lord, I know this. some of these things we've said hasn't perhaps gone down well for some, and I understand that. But Lord, 
Help us to remember you are a patient God, you're a merciful God, and you've called us to walk in faith, trusting, believing. Not just once, one time when you come to Christ in faith and accept his forgiveness, but every day to bring your troubles and concerns continually and constantly before you that you would guide your steps. Oh, Lord, how you love us and how we need to love each other and love our spouses and demonstrate that by our actions. And Lord, I don't believe that any of us here will ever know the depth of your love in this life. But we know enough. And we know that love has been shed abroad in our hearts. We know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We can have victory in this matter. And we can have strong marriages and we can overcome those terrible things taking place in the world that could draw us down and undermine what you intended to be a strong marriage. We have your word, we have prayer, we have your accessibility. We can come to you anytime, anyplace, anywhere, under any circumstances. And you hear. The veil was rent, and we have access. And my prayer is, Lord, that every person here will take advantage of that access that you've provided. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.